Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Jose, founding partner of Samaipata. Before joining the early stage pan-European VC fund, Jose was the co-founder of La Nevera Roja, the leading food delivery platform in Spain, which sold for $100 million in 2015. Jose has also worked at PwC and Accenture in strategy and M&A advisory. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Jose, welcome to the European VC podcast. It's super nice to have you here today. First things first, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me here today. I'm really excited. I have to ask this because you have a wonderful background with plants that I'm sure Andreas is super envious of right now. Where are you right now? Where are you calling from? I'm right now in Madrid. You can tell that that is definitely something that would not grow in the Nordics in cold Denmark. <laughs> That's where Andreas is. Joseph, for those who do not know who you are, give us a quick, quick intro of you, your route into venture, and of course, Samaipata. So my name is Jose del Barrio. I'm currently the founding partner of Samaipata, venture capital firm. Before uh, we founded Samaipata, that we, I will get into more detail uh, later, I was the founder of a food delivery company. It was the leading brand in Spain. Uh, we founded it in 2011 and sold it in, in 15. It was a nice exit. And right after we sold the company, I started into venture and we raised our first fund for Samaipata in 2016. And that's where my GP adventure started. I can give you a bit of background about Samaipata. So we are early stage pan-European VC fund. We specialize in digital businesses with network effects. And we typically invest in pre-Series A companies, but we, we can be flexible on that. We usually round between one to six million, which we typically lead or co-lead. But again, flexible here. It gets around two million. We can invest more than 15 million per company uh, out of our last fund, which is a 110 million fund, second fund. Yeah, maybe a bit more of the background on that. Uh, Saipat is a founder's fund created by two entrepreneurs, myself, uh, José del Barrio, with the background I just mentioned, and then my co-founder, Eduardo, who is also the chairman, who's also a former founder. He, he founded a company. It was a 3D sound system that was sold to Dolby. And he is also first business angel and current chairman of a company called MassMobile that is now worth $20 billion. It's the biggest startup in Southern Europe. And we have the, our team is distributed across Europe. We have offices in London, Paris, and Madrid. I'm right in saying that you are, you know, a Spanish bred team. But am I also right in saying that you were among maybe the first wave of investors in in Spain and Iberia as a whole as well? Yeah, uh, that's kind of true. When actually, when I was a founder at La Nevera Roja, there were no VC firms here, and the first cohort of uh, institutional funds in Spain. Were, were born around 13, 14, and we launched Samaipat in 16. So, yeah, very early. It was very, very early days for Iberia. How would you, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, and many of our listeners aren't based in Iberia, so I guess they might might be interested as well. How have you seen the ecosystem develop as a whole? You know, I, I have some opinions on the fact that many players in Iberia are, are like hyper-local, 
and they're less pan-European and you are an exception. But I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts around how the whole region has developed and your positioning in the region as well over time. It's amazing how quickly as everything developed. So as I said before, when we start racing for our startup, you could meet every VC investor or even tech investor in one day or even one morning here. You fast forward a few years, there were this handful of institutional firms, like more VC firms that were burned back then. And now you fast forward another five years, so in total like around 10 years, and you see a well-developed ecosystem. The funding per year has 10x in the last six years. It's, very, it's pretty amazing. So from 200, 300 per year to a few billions. And the, the amount of talent that is available, the ambition of founders, all those things have evolved very, very quickly. Having international funds investing in, in the region has played a, a very, very important role. There are also some international firms that have been born here. Uh, we have this pan-European approach that I, I think is also very healthy for the ecosystem to evolve. So yeah, really exciting times. And as of today, the pace of development is still super, super high. I'd love to ask because it's rare that you see firms highlighting their ethos. And you, your ethos is we go beyond, we think big, and we stay real. I'd love your take on those bullets and tell me what, why are those important to, to you and Samaipata? We actually take our brand really, really seriously. Uh, at the end of the day, as a VC uh, firm, brand of the of the firm, so you have, as, as we all know, you have the, the brand of the firm, you have the brand of the different funds that you raise, and then you have the personal brands on the investment team typically, right? And those are th concepts, uh, things that we take really, really seriously, and we did a very long exercise speaking with the, the team about what do we really stand for, right? And this is something that we try to, to kind of be very vocal about in our website, our marketing, and, and when we speak with entrepreneurs. And these are, so after all these exercises, we, we came up with these three ideas, right? On the first hand, we, we have this concept of go beyond. It's like we really are willing to go the extra mile. We know it's not going to be easy. And if it were easy, it would be done, right, already. So we, we really need to do that extra, as I said, effort and going beyond. And it's very, very in our DNA. And that is also mixed with this idea of resilience and how we can, we also look for founders that share those ideas and we try to back them, right, uh, with the same rationale or spirit, right? And then the, the second one has to do with think big. I think this is something like is in the DNA of venture capital as a business. So we all know the power law. We all know how important it is to look for huge markets and huge outcomes. So we are uh, really ambitious and we are looking for founders that are really ambitious and insatiable. So those two things need to be kind of connected, right? Our ethos and, and the founders that we are looking for. And the, the last idea is this idea around being real. Right? For us, that has to do with honesty, transparency, which are really, really important topics to us. We do try to have the highest standards in this regard. But we, are, we are also expecting the founders that we invest that for this, right? And, and as we all know, when, when you invest in a, in a company or when an entrepreneur gets VC money, it's like a very long marriage, right? Actually, in, in many countries, above the average marriage, right? 10 years. So we need to, to really share those values if we want this partnership to be fruitful and successful. Uh, so we are vocal with our values and we try to find founders that share the same values. And I was about to say, could you dive a bit more into how you ensure that staying real part? Because 
we all want those connections, but if you need to build it in a systematic way across the firm again and again and again, <laughs> it's not that easy typically, right? So I'd love to hear how you think about that both on a personal level, but also ensuring it on the fund level or firm level. I think it's a combination of one being really honest and transparent, right? And, and, and that has to do with self-criticism and being very understanding that things can go wrong. Things uh, you can really have a big mess, but you need to stay grounded, try to face it and be transparent about it. Just learn about it and keep progressing, right? And it's idea of being grounded and how do you ensure that is, is hard. I think it has to do a lot with, of trust. It has to do with trust. So it's okay to fail as long as you fail that pain and then uh, that helps you progress, right? As opposed to I do something wrong and try to hide it because I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to admit that it's the opposite. It's like it's totally fine. There is You fail, then you feel the pain, and then you think about it and then you progress, right? Um, I think that that's a little bit the, the idea behind that. And, and, and trust is one component. And if you create that environment with the trust, uh, trustful environment, I think that's the way to ensure it. But in any case, it's, it's a very hard one. I always love to dive into conversations like this where it becomes so apparent that deciding on one thing for your brand also has strong implications for how you need to act as an investor, right? And as a, uh, as a thinker. That's interesting to hear. Now, my question would then be, you started out in 2016, and we're now looking uh, at the calendar, and it says 23. It's been some time, and I'd love to hear how your brand has developed since and what you thought in the beginning would be important pillars, and if something has either fallen out or, or something has been emphasized. Biggest thing that probably has evolved is how important for us is the idea of brand. Uh, at the beginning, we were not that aware of that. So second one is, when you build a brand, you can build a brand that is optimized for one stakeholder or, or the other, right? At the beginning, we didn't know that we developed and well communicated mostly towards entrepreneurs. So at the beginning, we had we kind of gave too much importance to our LPs. And I think that, that very quickly we realized is like, guys, this the brand needs to be built towards founders. If you find the right founders, you back the right founders, LPs will follow. That was one of the early days, uh, learnings on the early days. Could you dive a bit deeper on the implications there for your brand and marketing then? Because I think that that's a very good point and it's something that Dave and I have definitely also spoken to firms about this part that, well, as long as you just focus on the entrepreneurs, then the LPs will come because the LP will also evaluate whatever they see brand-wise as this is not made for me. <laughs> the brand is not made for me. It's not me that they are trying to attract all day long, every day. So, so I'd love to hear how that affected your messaging in the early days and to where it is now. Funny anecdote. I, I had the same realization uh, in the early days of uh, La Nevera Roja, which was the food delivery marketplace that I, I launched. And in other marketplaces that we invest, you go to their homepage and the messaging, the narrative, everything is built towards one of the sites of the marketplace, typically the hardest, right? In the case of La Nerea Roja, it was about acquiring customers. As long as you generate demand, supply will be happy. So the supply was not expecting you to speak with them. So speak to customers, you to attract the customers, and the supply, the restaurant will be happy, right? So, and I, I think this, this is the same logic here. Is like the top one priority is partnering with top 1% of entrepreneurs, world-class entrepreneurs, business entrepreneurs, and LPs will follow. So... And then the narrative and the tone of voice and everything is adapted to that. 
for instance, the user persona or the buyer persona changes completely. So typically NLP is more risk averse, older in age, looking for financial returns, all that. Whereas an entrepreneur, what he's looking for is a different tone of voice, but also what is your value proposition? What are the values that you stand for? Are you the right partner for me? The answers are very different. And so we kind of forget if, uh, sorry, if there is one of the listening to me, <laughs> but kind of forget about the piece and we just optimize for best founders and all the narrative, everything is optimized for that. And I'm focused on what I just said about what they are looking for. And as a founder, I kind of founder and also we speak every day with them and, and, and we understand what they are looking for. And that's the, the, what we're trying to, to answer across our all our messages. Thanks. I have a, a question that goes also to the topic of brand, but it might be a, a tiny bit off topic, but I'm very interested to hear is, you know, there's a lot of talk around brand building around the firm, brand building around the individual, you know, around the GP. And I imagine, you know, as, and correct me if this is a wrong statement, I don't think it is, but correct me if it is, being you and your co-founder, right, your other partner, co-founding partner, among the first kind of successful entrepreneurs in the region, you could have easily made this about yourselves in terms of brand, right? So it's founder-centric and it's about these two these two guys who are amazing for X, Y, Z, whatever, right? Some have done that and some have done that really successfully, right? And so maybe my question goes to the point, you know, what were your considerations around doing that versus what you actually did, which is much more, don't get me wrong with the word, it's much more institutional in the sense that it's more transversal that whoever joins the team tomorrow and if you leave tomorrow as an example for whatever reason, good or bad, right? It still stands. Like, why? What were the considerations that led you to go that route? I think we are here to build a long-lasting firm, and we are trying to build the, the building blocks for that, and we are trying to optimize for that, right? And and we we understand that if you, if you wanna get very very high, you get to be successful, you will need to attract the best talent, and in order to attract the best talent, they need to feel home. And if, if it's all uh, very personalistic, they will feel less at home. So that's one thing. And that's the reason why we, we build all the narrative and everything. And, and it's not just a marketing thing. It's just what we believe is that we are trying to build an amazing team. And actually, we have already one partner that is leading our activities in, in France and is doing an amazing job, has promoted from junior associate to, to partner in, in a very short period of time. And, and that's the kind of things that the success story that we are trying to, to we are looking for, right? Now, when it comes to standing above the crowd or, or trying to stand above the, all the noise that we see these days, and also when you speak with media and um, public relations and all that, it's true that, it, for instance, in my case, when we sold Alana Vera Roja, was the best well-known startup in the region by far. So you also, if, if you are facing a similar situation, you should also capitalize on that. And now, how do you balance out those two things, right? You are building a firm, you want people to feel at home, but at the same time, you have this, let's call it lever, growth hack, whatever, to use the previous brand equity from your previous experiences and try to redirect that to this to an emerging brand. That, that's a little bit the, the rationale behind. So you, I think as an emerging LGP, you need to, I think, balance both. And we, that's the, what we are trying to do. It's like, yes, we're building brands as an institution, as a long-lasting firm, but at the same time, as we have our personal brands or track, previous track record, let's get the most out of that at the same time. Now, balance is never easy, but that's a little bit the, the, the logic behind. I would love to ask you to a very operational question on brand and marketing, because 
there's all these different ways to build brand in VC and, and market yourself. But I'd love to hear if there's any insights on what has worked best for you. You have firms that spend a lot of energy on content. You have firms that spend a lot of energy on David is not in here because it's obviously we're spending quite some time building content. And then you have other firms that are, are more focused on purely making sure that they have a good rep, but they don't necessarily push some push a mess, message out there in, in broader marketing channels. I'd love to hear your take there. I think it's a combination. I would love to say, and, and in, in many actually startups, there is an 80-20 thing where 80% of the impact comes from 20% of the of the channels. In this case, I think you need to do a variety of things and it's hard to say no to some of the components of the toolkit, right? So I think at the end of the day, it's brand building exercise. At the same time, you need to build a very, very curated network of referrers or a, let's say feeders, peer visits, etc. And you need to do to build that brand towards entrepreneurs and towards Years or v, v, uh, business angels, other VCs, etc. Right, and you need to do that exercise. And and I think content is a very important piece for us. And I think it's gonna be the case and moving forward. Obviously, PR, more traditional PR, is important. So you, you make sure the messages you send the message across successfully. And then you have uh, social media events, and then, then you the, obviously you have more the CRM type of thing like uh, email, etc. So. But I think each of them have a role, and I think it's not a like it's one channel versus the other. I think uh, all of them play nicely if you combine them in the, in the right way. But it's definitely, it's definitely a thing. Yeah. Now I want to turn this to where we almost started by neglecting, <laughs> meaning that you realize that you should be building brand for founders, not for LPs, and now we're in a time where you know a lot of people are struggling to raise now, but you've managed to to raise a second fund of 110 million. So you've, you've really managed to build something with SemiPata. So I'd love to ask you about your reflections on building brand towards LPs then and, and how those two things connect and whether they connect at all. Obviously, fundraising, it's a big thing. It's a big challenge. Uh, and actually, I, I have to say that I, I've been fundraising for the last 12 years because I, I always be, I'm always fundraising. So we had to raise like four rounds for the company I founded, then the first fund, then the second fund, and then between first closing and last closing, there is a period of time. You spend a, a ton of time uh, fundraising. I think it's critical, but and, and that's something that you need to uh, do consistently. is super time-consuming. But the brand, uh, I think it has less of a branding um, component. I think um, my understanding is towards LP is not that much about the branding. It's more about trust. And that's more network-based most of the times and track record-based, I would say. It's a, it's a different play. I think it's like it's a branding play for fundraising. I see less of a thing. I see more is network and track record-based. In our case, we were fortunate enough to leverage and well, basically all the investors we had in, in my previous business, follow on. Uh, so invested in in fund one, and then most of the investors in fund one invested again in fund two. I think that's the way to go. Uh, you build trust with some individuals because of the startup you founded, or because of the first fund, tiny first fund that you raise, and then you through that network. If they see that you consistently do what you said you were gonna do, that's the way you build trust, and 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 they keep 
going. That's my thinking about it. So Andreas just dropped uh, a piece of information there. So let me just restate it for our listeners' sake, right? So Fund 1, uh, Samapata, roughly 30 million, correct? And right. Fund 2, uh, north of 100, roughly. Yeah, yeah. 100, 110, yeah. And, and four years apart, roughly, the, the dates that, that you launched, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'd love to ask you, that that is a significant decrease. That is also two very different periods of time to raise, right? 16, not to raise, but to close at least, 16 and 20. I'd love to ask you for the sake of other emerging GPs listening in, particularly those that are like in, in fund one right now, right? Deploying fund one or just started deploying fund one. You know, what were your co- core learnings from those two fundraisers? So fundraise of fund two and fundraise of fund one, one versus the other. What were like learnings that you have, things that surprised you? You know, the LP base, I imagine, is very different from one to the other. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that. I would say one of the things that has surprised me the most is the, the extremely long sales cycle. You, we did a ton of fundraising effort at the beginning. We met a ton of people, many, many meetings. But then when we raised the fund, almost raised the fund, we analyzed the investors and say, look, in 99% of the cases, those relationships were all relationships. One way or, the, or or another, right? Either people that knew you from 10 years ago, from other experiences, people that invested in Ana Roja, people that you met four years ago, but almost none of them were young relationships or relationships that had started in a short uh, period of time right after, right? Uh, so th- that was one of the main decisions. Does that mean that that effort was wasted? Not at all. I think it's just a matter of you are planting the seed, you are seeding, and maybe those relationships that you start when you try to raise fund one will invest in fund two or in fund three. People like to connect the dots, right? So they have a snapshot of you here and then a snapshot of you two, three, four, five, six years after. And if the story makes sense, that is an amazing, a very powerful way to build trust. Because it's like, hey, this guy told me he was going to do this, this and that. And look, it's exactly what he has done well, I, I think I can trust this guy when he's now telling me, I'm going to do this, right? Um, and no, that's, we do a, the, that's a really good point. Are, are you speaking from experience there in the sense that you yourself experienced that in the second fundraise where you, you knocked at some repeat door, so to speak, and, and you had those conversations and that was something that you felt really played a role? Absolutely. You also see that in other contexts. As a founder, when I uh, had to raise from individuals, some of them they don't invest at the beginning, but they keep track of you, and then invest maybe two, three rounds after. And the same thing happened when I raised fund one. Some of the investors that had rejected uh, me as a founder invested as a, as a GP in fund one, and same thing in, in fund two. Some of them that rejected either as a founder or as a GP in fund one invested in fund two. Because people like consistency, like they just listen to you. I say, okay, and take notes. And then in five years, look at the notes and say, you told me this, this, and that. We do that also as a... As VCs, right? As VCs, we met a founder with a PowerPoint. I say that's fine, awesome. Let's speak in six to twelve months, and if things move in the direction the person, the founder said, then you say, "Wow, I can trust this person," right? How do you then strategically think about? Because based on that realization, right, you you're very quick to then jump to the conclusion. Okay, <laughs> when I meet a first potential LP, then 
I am not trying to convert for this fund. I'm trying to build a relationship for the next five years, and then hopefully he'll come into the fund that will happen in <laughs> at that time, right? So how do you think about that customer journey and, and how many touch points to ensure that you have? Do you get them? Do you do an LP and potential LP newsletter that comes out every month or every quarter? How do you keep that relationship alive with someone you're, you're just meeting for the first time tomorrow? There are two, two things, right? One is from the very minute you start thinking of raising a fund until the last minute of the last closing, there's also a period of time that could be one year, two years, three years. So because I may, between first and last closing, the average, I think, is 18 months or something like that. Sometimes it's 24 months. But you typically, from first closing, before first closing, maybe it's another six, 12 months, imagine. So from point A to point B, that there is a very relevant amount of time. So you can also think, okay, this person is not going to tell me it was one of my main mistakes at the beginning is, okay, uh, you meet that person and say, hey, are you going to invest or not? No, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so you maybe meet that person today and, and you will make a decision in a year and a half, but maybe in, in, in that same fund. So that's one thing. And the, the other one is, okay, true, that person maybe says, okay, I'm not investing in fund one because you are a first-time fund or, 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 uh, or second-time fund, uh, we only invest in third-time fund when the track record is solid, whatever. So... Uh, I think it's important to keep that relationship, and, and uh, we try to do that through our annual general meetings, through email, through informal coffees, whatever, to, so they kind of keep track of what uh, we are doing, and, and we keep that relationship open. As, as the investor base grows, it's true that it's a bit uh, more difficult, um, less scalable, silly because at the beginning, you typically have smaller LPs as you grow as a GP, you tend to convince m- more institutional LPs that are bigger, and then handle them is less time consuming, maybe, right? Uh, I mean, per unit, per unit, not in total. <laughs> I have one more question before David will take us to the quick fire, and that is that we spoke to a GP with, I'd say, similar long-term views on building relationships to LPs, but he took it to the level where he would actually very actively talk to especially, of course, you know, the, the, the less sophisticated LPs in the VC space about their allocation strategy. So he'd try and say, okay, tell me, before we start talking and me trying to pitch the fund and everything, tell me, what are you guys hoping to achieve and so on? Yeah, and- yeah, 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 that's absolutely true. Uh, probably uh, that would be my second learning as an emerging fund manager is, <laughs> what is the sales process about? It's about convincing that person to invest in VC or convincing an already convinced LP, so in VC, to pick you as uh, the right VC to, to invest. So it's a different thing. So it's convincing to invest in your fund or in VC. My experience is that if the first is not already solved, kind of don't waste your time because the probability is close to zero. So because you need to do two sales bits in the same moment, uh, probability the combined probability of that is zero close to zero. So uh, I would focus on that, those that are already have already decided to invest in VC SLPs. Those you then can convince through trust, track record, whatever. But trying to teach them about how VC works and all that is it's, it's not a waste of time. It's just not fruitful, let's say. <laughs> yeah. no, and I think that that also speaks to the um, sophistication level of ecosystems because the guy I was speaking about here is, is a Turkish uh, GP and he is primarily raising from Turkish LPs. And back when he was raising their first fund, 
there was nothing else to do than try and teach them what the hell LP, uh, VC is, right? So in that sense, there is definitely a difference between between being in one geo to another. In a more established ecosystem, you can, you do have the privilege of saying, nah, fuck it. If you're if you're not used to doing VC investments, nah, then I don't bother. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. We will remain as friends, but probably I wouldn't waste a lot of energy trying to yeah. convince you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. If you've already... Yeah, and the, uh, as, as the ecosystem gets more sophisticated, the number of people willing to invest in VC grows, so your job gets much easier because the fee, the, the pond that you are fishing in grows. Uh, in our case, it's a bit different because we have a relevant proportion of our LPs that are not in Spain, thankfully. But yeah, so that that is definitely a, a thing, and 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 it's true that your LP base tend to be skewed towards where your network is, at least at the beginning. Uh, so those geographies were a less sophisticated or of uh, investor base or LP base will um, have a harder time raising funds. That's a reality. I need to ask one final question before David takes it. And it's a bit out of nowhere, maybe, but I just realized that we haven't spoken about this at all on the podcast, and I would love to hear your take on it. And that is, if you had one thing to say to the VC ecosystem about Spain, what would that be? And feel free to think of it. But, I, you know, we, we haven't spoken too much about Spain on the podcast. So for that reason, I'd love to just hear your take on the Spanish ecosystem. I would like to clarify. So we've invested in 35 companies so far. Less than 50% or around 50% are in Spain, 50% are outside. So we are a truly pan-European visitor from it's true that, and we have a team in France, we have a team in London. So, but that's it's also true uh, that just, we were born uh, here. But just as a note to the audience, that's also why I'm asking you, right? Because if I, if I asked a purely Spanish investor, I would get a sales pitch. <laughs> you don't, you don't really have that uh, the reason to try and sell Spain. So I'd love to hear that your take there. Totally. I think what is very, very attractive uh, of the Spanish ecosystem these days is that it's catching up very quickly. So we have this uh, trend that is democratizing, in a way, the, the VC as an asset class globally. So at the beginning, it was extremely concentrated in Silicon Valley and a few tech hubs, and now it's getting more and more and more democratized. And, and I think remote work has only accelerated that trend, right? And what, what is this about is a less developed ecosystem growing faster than the more developed ecosystem. By definition, if you are in a thriving ecosystem that is underdeveloped versus the top uh, tech hubs, it's going to grow faster. And you want to be in markets that grow fast, fast, or faster, right? And that's a little bit the, the idea here is so Spain is right now the third, fourth tech hub in Europe. 12, 13 countries in the world. But there is something that is great is as it was underdeveloped, was lying behind, now it's catching up, so it's growing faster, right? And that is a lot of, that represents like a big opportunity. So you have typically better access to talent, less, com less competitive talent market. You have uh, probably less less competition as uh, also as, as GPs, uh, other markets that, like in, for instance, in London. So there are a number of things that make the the, the, the market really really interesting. That uh, that and that's the reason why it's growing so quickly. You know, so that's um, it, it's it's a maybe right now that we are in 23. It's a slightly different. Remember that the market has completely changed in the in 22 23. The last 10 years was relatively easy to raise money. I mean, across the world because there was a lot of money. 
but it was really hard to retain talent and to, excuse me, to acquire talent and retain talent. And also was really hard to stand above the, the crowd or about the noise, right? Uh, in that context, definitely uh, a country like Spain was like uh, very attractive in, in those regards. It's true that now the, t- the rules of the game have the rules of the game have completely changed the last couple of years. Now it's the opposite. So now raising money is much more difficult. But the good news is that there is much more talent available. Uh, your talent is not being poached all the time, and standing like above the crowd, above the noise, is much easier because your competitors are not giving away money, subsidies, uh, free money, everything. And they don't have an army of salespeople because they, they don't have enough. They are not as well-funded as before. So I think it's a great, really great moment to invest in early stage right now in, in the case of Spain as well. So this, this definitely applies to Spain, but also some other countries. I think all, all in all, it's really exciting overall and in Spain because of the reasons I said just before, I, I would say even more. Jose, it's now the time of the quick fire round. That's how we end every single episode's quick answer questions, 30 to 60 second replies for each. Are you ready? Yeah, ready for the challenge. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be very easy. First question, what areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most that people around you don't really seem to be that excited about? I guess I cannot say a generative AI because everyone is really <laughs> excited about it. <laughs> we are also really excited but uh, I think most people as well. So that, uh, I guess, is not a possible question. I would say, given that we are in 2023 and Web3 is now really, uh, is not something that people look super excited about, I, w- I would say Web3. We, we still think uh, it's a great space to invest, especially the backbone and the peaks and shovels of Web3. We love that. Second question of the quick fire. What are your top tips for other emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising? Raising in 2023, I would say uh, start small. I love that. <laughs> We've had that chat many times on the pod, so I want to just double click on that. We love that. Uh, we love that tip. Third and final question. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture capital? Um, that's a good one. I think there are a bunch of things that are really, really counterintuitive in venture capital. If I had to say one in the early stages, especially as a founder myself, I think what it was really, really, really difficult to understand at the beginning was this idea of having 50% plus mortality rate in a VC portfolio. So that idea and the idea of that being right or even good, I couldn't understand that, right? Uh, even the, the, the fact that uh, having a low mortality rate is, is not necessarily something in good itself. Maybe it means that you are taking uh, less risk than you should. So. This whole idea about mortality rate in early states and the idea of the power law, I think is something that is super counterintuitive and it, it took me a while to really get it. Uh, and it's definitely a, a critical aspect of, of what we do. Jose, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It was awesome. Same here. I enjoy a lot. Thank you so much for, for having me, guys. And congrats on the podcast. I think you, you guys are doing a, a terrific job. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.